0: So. so this will be a very short preamble this time. Um, just a couple of comments in terms of the entry. We have multiple ways, and I would j- um, invite you just to kind of check out for yourself what are most conducive and a very practical way what, what are most effective for just getting right into the flow of the practice. So something we've not done for a while, but you're always welcome to do. It's not very noisy. It won't be very disturbing to your neighbors here. And that is the um, the ninefold breathing, you know, just kind of cl- cleanse out the system, almost like spring cleaning. Open up, open open up all the windows and let the breeze flow through. So You're always welcome to do that. It'll be a little bit of breathing noise at the beginning, but everybody should be able to handle that by now. Um, counting 21 breaths is a time-tested method often used in Tibet for centuries now. Just going right into awareness of awareness, kind of as if you've already achieved shamatha, as I've as I've said so many times. The shamatha without a sign or awareness of awareness is really the closest facsimile where the, the method is so similar to the fruition, right? The path. You're taking the fruition as the path, so to speak. And so you'll recall that on stage stage nine, and then after you've achieved shamata, it's just it's just effortless in. You know, you, you don't have to, oh, okay, here we go. There's none of that. You know, there's no effort to get in, you just you just go in, right? But you know, you've already tasted that. I actually I, you know, isn't it true? Let's go ahead and just do it now. It's going to be five seconds. But, you know, as soon as I snap the fingers, you will think you're a zebra. <laughs> no, no, I did. No, not that. No, not that. Um, when I snap my fingers, just, you know, just be aware of what you're already aware of. Right? That's the thing. That's why it's so easy. If I said, okay, think about zebras, okay, okay oh, yes, yeah, I got it. You know, but then you have to do something more that you weren't doing already. But when I say, just drop right into awareness of awareness. You're already aware of being aware of being aware. Right. So let's just do it. See how easy it is. See how, for yourself, see how effortless it is. It's going to be five seconds. And just drop right into awareness of awareness and stay in that presence of being aware of being aware. Let's do it right now. But, Gonzalo, you have to sit. How do you have your head up? <laughs> you, you, you don't want to start like this. <laughs> okay. No big drum roll here. Let's just do it. Really is easy. So that's another way in. No drum roll, just, just go right in. Okay? So, and then more traditional ways, refuge, bodhitta, guru yoga, all kind of ways to have the most meaningful session as possible. Motivation, motivation, motivation. That's really core. Cool. Okay? That's enough. So I gave a long preamble yesterday. That means we can have a very short preamble today. So here it is. It's your time to Make your own music, ultimate and relative bodhicitta. Enjoy yourself. See you in 24 minutes. Ola. So we'll have a little bit of um, more discussion of the practice for, for dying, for the dying process, to transmute that, kind of the, what many people regard as the kind of the final grand finale adversity. As they say, you know, if you have a bad business transaction or a fire burns down your house, you can lose little by little. You might lose a loved one, et cetera, et cetera. But when death comes, then mm, that's the end of all your hedonic pleasures. That is, in one fell swoop, you lose everything, even your own body and even your own mind. And so if one can transmute that adversity so that it is not experienced as an adversity at all, adversity is a label. Right? It's a conceptual designation. It's not intrinsically an adversity. That's really the core of this whole lojong. There's nothing that is intrinsically an adversity. But to be able to realize that, exper- that experientially and not just have it lip service, then, of course, like Shantideva said, that is, with familiarization, there's nothing that doesn't become easier. And so there's the challenge right there. You know, This is one of the most pleasant, conducive, nurturing, warm non-problematic environments I've ever been in my life. You know, I keep on coming back here. Uh, and so the adversities that arise here tend to be, except for those that are internally erupting, are very, very mild, but anything that comes up. If one can take the little ones, you know, the little things, a little bit of stomach upset, a bit of insomnia, a little bit of whatever coming up, and transmute that, then you build success on success, right? Success, and then you get confidence, get confidence, until eventually, you know, like a young 22 years in prison, That wasn't adversity for him, or Kumobashi. That wasn't adversity for him, but that came through a lot of maturation, right? And so, (coughs) as we prepare to transform the last great challenge, which on the one hand, big adversity or losing everything; on the other hand, you know, from the inside kind of insider approach, I often think of it as like if you're a a really skilled surfer. I'm from California, you know. Uh, If you're a skilled surfer. There's sometimes, uh, you know, when there's the perfect storm out in the Pacific, uh, <clears throat> especially on certain beaches in Hawaii and some, um, certain places in California as well, you just get these really big, big waves coming in, you know. Uh, on the north shore of Oahu, 10, 12, 12-foot waves, but with this perfect shape. You know, they don't just, they do, don't just uh, close out because that's worth nothing, whether it's a 3-foot wave or a 50-foot wave. If it closes out, then it doesn't matter. You can't ride it but one of these large waves that just has that perfect curl, you know. I mean, they're really beautiful to see. And if you're a skilled surfer, you can be waiting out there in the ocean and you'll and you're waiting for that wave and you see it behind you coming, the one you've been waiting for for maybe, you know, half an hour an hour maybe longer and then you see here it comes. Here it comes. You get in the right position and then that's that's your ride, you know. That's the ride for the day where you get right right in that curl and that's the dying process. You, know, you get right in the curl, get right in the sweet spot, and you go right down the tube, uh, the ride of your life, because everything's going your way. For shamatha, everything's going your way. You, d- you don't have any problem with rumination. You don't, if, you, if you're free of attachment, if you're really a skilled surfer, then you take that final wave and you surf yourself right through the dying process, right into the substrate, loose it all the way, and there you are, poised for the breaking through the substrate right into the clear light of death. Slip right into there. You're set. You have the right, right of your life. You know? So it can be the best meditation of your life. That's entirely up to you. Right. So, but as we consider this, I go back to the themes that I chose for this book. I don't know, it came out years ago, The Attention Revolution, where it's primarily focusing, of course, on the three methods of shamatha. But those little interludes, you remember those? little brief interludes of the four immeasurables, which is laying the, seed, the, the foundation, the, sowing the seeds for bodhicitta. That's what it's all about in the Mahayana context. But you recall the other interludes, and that's dream yoga. You know, just these little baby steps into dream yoga. But shamatha being that which empowers everything there, gives the depth, the continuity, the transformative power to your practice of the four immeasurables, and then also is providing you with the relaxation, stillness, and clarity that you'll just plow right into, Your dream yoga practice, so that you, when you become lucid, you don't get so excited, you wake up. You're maintaining that kind of sense of ease and relaxation. And then you have the stillness, which is to say continuity, so you can sustain both the dream and your lucidity of the dream. Those are two independent variables. You can remain lucid and and lose the dream, in which case you go into lucid, dreamless sleep. Or you can, how do you say, you can lose your lucidity and continue dreaming, but then non lucidly. But the idea here is two-pronged, right? To maintain both your lucidity and the dream and then be able to really explore the nature of the mind uh, by, way, by way of its, its manifest luminosity, knowing that everything that's manifesting in the dream is simply a free creation of your mind. Well, where I'm, I'm going here is with the shamatha, which, as we can see, segues right into realization of emptiness, right into realization of rikpa. You're right there, you're laying the foundation for your ultimate bodhicitta. That's what it is. And with the four immeasurables, you're laying your foundation for relative bodhicitta. Atisha made this famous statement, ironic, he was keen on irony. You remember it? Only you Tibetans know how to develop bodhicitta without, without developing the four immeasurables. You know. He was being ironic. Okay. And so with these two, you're laying the foundation. You can say you are practicing, if your motivation is to achieve bodhicitta and, and proceed on that path, then even when you're practicing loving kindness for yourself, you know, and then gradually extending it, you can say, I'm practicing bodhicitta meditation. Right? Why not? Because that's exactly that, that's the current that you've slipped into, and that's your motivation for cultivating loving kindness for yourself, your loved ones, and, and extending outwards, and then right through the four immeasurables. You're practicing, but you're practicing relative bodhicitta right there. And then likewise, as I mentioned yesterday, whether it's mindfulness of breathing or the other, any of the other three practices, if your motivation is that this is, this is this smooth path, really quite seamless path, doing these practices and having it segue right into realization of emptiness and that right into rigpa, then you can say, you know, without aggrandizing yourself, puffing yourself up as some big you know, hot hotshot, you're cultivating ultimate bodhicitta. That's what you're really doing. That's what it's really all about, Right? And so we have those two. Well, oh, but that's what we're doing right here. This is what Atisha says when you're in the dying process. Then go back and forth, you know, and as far along the path as you are. If you're just starting and you're just kind of getting your baby steps in loving kindness for yourself and your little baby steps in mindfulness of breathing, and then you die, okay, well, do that. That's good enough. That's a good start. That's bound to turn out well. And if you're a very accomplished practitioner, then you're just further along the path of both of those two. But then you're going to alternate. As you're in the dying process, alternate wherever you're on the path. There you are, and be happy about it, and take full advantage of it. Right. So there it is, little old shamatha, little old four immeasurables. There it is, right on the path of relative and ultimate bodhicitta. Right. And so that will converge. You integrate these. You go back and forth, back and forth, until your mind collapses into the substrate consciousness, hopefully lucidly, and then right into the clear light of death, perhaps lucidly. But then what comes after that is the bardo. Okay. There are multiple bardos. But the most famous one, when people say the bardo, they're usually referring to the bardo of becoming, or the transitional process of becoming. That's the famous bardo, right? And the best, prop- the best preparation for that, or at least a classic one, <coughs> of course, is dream yoga. That's the primary reason, historically, for the last thousand years or so in Tibet, the primary reason ple- people would practice dream yoga uh, would be to prepare themselves so that when they are in the bardo, they're lucid in the bardo. They're recognizing the bardo as the bardo and just exactly as in a lucid dream. The more lucid you are, the greater freedom you have and therefore, concomitantly, together with that, the more fearless you are because you know what's going on. right? And so the dream yoga then is preparing you to become lucid in the bardo. So very quickly, you're... Uh, you've you're not, you've not, you don't fall under the delusion of thinking you're still alive. Very quickly you say, okay, I was anticipating this. I remember it. I'm lucid. I can remember the teachings I received in the past when I was still alive. I no longer am. Now is the time for practice. Now the stakes are high. Now I'm in a high posi- uh, This is a high-stakes game, and I am right now in a high-potential place because I'm not locked in anywhere. I'm not a human being, not deva, hell-being, or anything else. I'm right here in transit, and I'm lucid. And this is looking good. If you're lucid, this is looking real good. If you're not lucid, then count on your previous karma, your prayers, your aspirations. It can still turn out just fine. But if you're lucid, oh, wow. And of course, you'll know you're lucid. Then you're like riding this mighty stallion, and you've got the reins. Where would you like to go? You know, how would you like to transform this bardo as you previously became more and more acquainted with, more expert at? Transforming your lucid dream. Shaping it as you wish, like an artist, again. Well, now shape your bardo. you know, got all kinds of options. If you're lucid, you have enormous freedom and fearlessness. Freedom and fearlessness in the bardo is oh, worth more than anybody can pay. You know, So there's a nice triad. It's a good practice, a good, good set of practices. So now we, now we come back, just to finish off. Final advice on dying. So the classic instruction here is to adopt the sleeping lion posture, the one in which the Buddha himself, the Buddha Shakyamuni, passed away lying on your right side, your right palm supporting your cheek, your, your legs out fairly straight, your left hand just lying on your thigh. And so that's good when it aligns the nadis. It's good. But not all yogis adopt that. It's not like oh, that's the only way to die. Uh, when I was 1992, I arrived, I didn't, I didn't tell you this. In 1992, I arrived in Dharamsala, where what turned out to be a really marvelous mind of life meeting. It was on sleeping, dreaming, and dying. And we had a stellar group of scientists. Um, Richie Davidson came a little bit. No, he didn't come to that one. He came later. He came for the, the, for the research that immediately followed it. But Cliff Saron was there. Francisco Varela was still alive. And Greg Simpson was there. A number, of, Yeah, he was there. Um, so we had this group of, of neuroscientists, and, and then I. We arrived in Dharamsala, uh, maybe a day or two before this five-day meeting was to begin. And we just put our our luggage down in Kashmir Cottage, which is right near the library, uh, down below the Dalai Lama's compound. And we we just arrived, and we got an an immediate message, like, oh, okay, you've arrived, here, read this. And the message was uh, that right near us, I mean, five minutes walk away, a great lama had passed away just six or seven days earlier, and he was in the clear light of death. That is, his, and he, his, his, everything. all the metab- metabolic signs had ceased, but he was not decomposing. So, classic say, he is abide, abiding in what's called tukdam, or he's abiding in the clear light of death, where it's this total anomaly. And it's been witnessed many times, including by Western medical doctors and so forth, so there's no question it happens. But it's an anomaly in the sense that you can't say the person is alive, because as far as we know, there are no vital signs. There's, uh, As far as we know, no brain activity, no heartbeat, no respiration. This has been medically checked. But then everybody knows that uh, a dead body at room temperature, like 20 degrees centigrade, decomposes, and after seven days, you will not want to be anywhere near that dead body that's been at room temperature for seven days. I've spoken with people who have a lot of experience with corpses that you will not want to be near that body. The stench is overpowering, and it also looked really disgusting. Uh, so you won't want to see it, you want to smell it, you won't, you won't have anything to do with it. You want to burn it. right? But this lama had passed away, as I recall, seven days just before we arrived, and we were, we were invited by His Holiness. You, go over quickly. You neuroscientist, go over quickly. You'll see something you haven't seen before. And so we walked in. Well, we were a, a, literally a matter of hours too late. Uh, he had, because they're watching his, his close attendants, he died just in, in the, lying on his back in the supine position, just lying on his back. Um, so that's why I'm saying, he, you know, not everybody dies in the uh, sleeping lying posture. His name was Ratu uh, Urmbache, and uh, he lived there for years, and uh, so he passed away about seven days earlier, and it was simply—I think it was the night before, or something like that. It was simply a matter of hours, not even days, that his attendant saw that his tuktam, his final meditation, was finished, and his, stu- his 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 body was just starting to decompose but all the vital signs stopped 7 days before we were there so we just missed it you missed it by that much you know but the the neuroscientists came we were still invited in to just observe the body and we were told since his tokedown was over the scientists were told they could touch the body if he's still in meditation just don't mess with it right because he's still he's not dead but he's not alive you know and what's happened there is that the coarse mind is dissolved in the, into the subtle mind, in the substrate consciousness, Su- substrate consciousness is broken through to the clear light of death, which is primordial consciousness. The coarse energies have dissolved into subtle, subtle into extremely subtle. So everything is converged into this what's called the indestructible bindu, orb at the heart, you know, like the mm, how do you say the chamber of chambers, the in, the innermost chamber, right? And it and as long as that remains there, as long as that very subtle mind and combined with very subtle energy, as long as they're there, your body won't de- decompose. At the same time, outwardly, no visible signs at all, except for some real anomalies, like your, your, your complexion is fresh. There may be a warmth at the heart. You look like you're alive and just sleeping. Um, there can often be quite a, f- a pleasant fragrance in the room as well, Witnessed so many times you can't even count. We came, as I said, just hours too late, but I was there. And we saw a body that well, looked like it had just died. There was a, a, f- a smell in the air, but it wasn't unpleasant. It was just kind of odd, but not unpleasant, and certainly not one of decomposition like rotting flesh. Nothing like that at all. Um, and one of the scientists, Cliff Sarah, and we were told we could touch it. And the other, the other scientists were kind of like, you know, like, hmm. a little bit, a little bit. They'd never seen anything like this, and this was off the charts. This was does not compute in their worldview. This shouldn't be able to happen. A, a corpse that has not been breathing for 7 days it should smell bad it shouldn't look like that you know um, but cliff you know bold fellow so he was told they can touch so he went and he touched the skin he said it was kind of spongy spongy okay. so there it is that was kind of a little deviation to just point out that yogis die in different positions some of them will die sitting up in meditation some like he supine others sleeping lying posture the buddha chose a sleeping lying and so there's one possibility and then then you alternate. You have this uh, relative bodhicitta. is cultivating love and compassion and conjoining the tonglen with your breathing for as long as you're breathing. Okay. So just you know, breathing in, breathing out. It's good to get accustomed to that before you're in the dying process. And then when the breathing stops, then that's just a natural time to disengage your attention from the breath and continue the tonglen, uh, not conjoined with the respiration. This is another aspect of the, uh, of the sequence from mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness, and then on into merging the mind with space, that is just kind of a delicious preparation for the dying process. Because if, if you're you're there and, and you're okay, so now I'm, and I'm going to start my practice, then as long as you're breathing, then you can do mindfulness of breathing, right? Until your breathing is going to st- you're going to breathe out, you're going to give it all away, but you won't get anything back. You know, there's no change. You just, and that's your last out breath. But your consciousness continues, in which case then it's just kind of like you were in first gear, you know, breathing in, breathing out, mindfully attending to the whole breath. And then, oh, the breath just stopped. Okay, time to sec- into second gear. Suddenly in the mind is natural state. There's still things happening. And, and now this very cool thing happening is your senses are shutting down, you know, imploding, but you still got you know the main arena is still there, the space of the mind. So you observe the show taking place there until eventually all the snow in the snow globe Dissipates, all the senses implode, and then all the activities of the mind, and different visions and so forth, they arise, they pass, and then you're simply left with substrate, because the show's over, you know. Your your course mind is retired, and so there you are. You've just settled the mind in its natural state, and you're left just with the empty substrate. Really good time. Maybe it's a good time to practice awareness of awareness. And then just come home. But of course, coming home is indivisible space. So there you are. You've just merged your mind with space. And you can hang out there for hours if you like, just resting lucidly in the substrate consciousness. Yeah? And then release any grasping, all grasping to that. And then you go into hyperspace. Damadatu. <laughs> primordial consciousness. So all practices here are all leading to that. They always have been. This is the 7th retweet we we've done, but the first five of them were just shamatha, the four immeasurables, and dream yoga. So, so as long as you can breathe, then why not practice the tonglen in conjunction with your breath? And then as for ultimate bodhicitta, one of the, the old commentaries, probably from Sejibua, he says, consider, so as you're cultivating, trying to go now to the greatest depth, get the biggest wave you can, ride the biggest wave you can, then go to the greatest depth you can, uh, and if this the following words make sense to you then follow this one consider all of samsara and nirvana consists of delusive appearances the ultimate nature of the mind has never been any has never been other than the dharmakaya so there is nothing in me that can die so this is where these there are these radically different perspectives and you don't want to be dying with people whose perspective is really fundamentally different from yours if they are materialists, you know then they feel I mean it's really tragic you know for them, and they consider it's for you too. I mean, you only had this one shot, and now you're going to be exterminated, become nothing forever, and now they've lost you forever. that's pretty bleak, and it's true, we can handle it, um, but that's kind of that's pretty sad, but if that's their view, but it's not your view at all then there's a real incongruent, incongruity there. So it's good to be just either on your own or with people who totally get it and for whom there's very little attachment. They're watching your final celebration. If you're really you know, an experienced practitioner, you don't have to be a great yogi, but if you're an experienced practitioner, this can be your final, you know, your coming out party. And so insofar as, insofar as you're identifying with your body, which is materialists will tell you that's your only option, then you're going to be dead as a doornail. You're going to, if this is who you think you are, you're going to become nothing. But, of course, you're going to change your mind on that one pretty quickly. But if you're attached to your body, attached to your mind, let alone the other stuff, you know, stuff around you, material possessions, loved ones, and so forth, then this is going to be a tough road. You won't be able to, you won't be able to ride the wave. It's going to, you're going to fall, and then the wave, 12, 12 feet of wave it's going to land on you. And it's going to be very topsy turvy, you know. i I've, I've I surfed a little bit when I was young, a lot younger, and even a five foot wave. When you have five foot of water coming on top of you. You know it. So it's a, it's quite chaotic. Let alone a much larger wave. So this can be very chaotic. The whole process can be very like that. Mm-hmm. But so, but if you release, as we are doing every single time we practice, going into settling the mind is natural state. Let alone beyond that. If you simply withdraw the tentacles of attachment, of identification, of mind, on the body, then whatever happens to the body, it may die. But if that's not where you where you belong, and you don't have a sense it really belongs to you, let alone that it's you, it dies, but you don't die. But then, if you're locked into your mind, and that's what you're identifying with, well, now you're watching your you're watching yourself lose your mind, because that's exactly what happened. The brain is necessary. For the, as a contributing condition for the generation of coarse mind from moment to moment that's why people become senile and many many problems arise when there's brain damage well now you're having the ultimate brain damage I mean total completely what's it called in an automobile um, your brain's getting totaled right it cannot be repaired and so it's getting total which means the brain is turning into you know in a nice gradual death it's becoming basically more and more inoperative until it's flatlined, and then that will show up, you know, in the in the hospital. Okay, the person now brain dead, in which case it's no longer able to generate core states of consciousness because they. You know, it's a necessary cause, but if you're not identifying with your mind either, you're simply observing it. Then, from the vantage point, from your throne, of awareness, your best approximation of the substrate consciousness. Well, you're watching yourself lose your mind as you follow the progression of shamatha. So if you have some you know, familiarity, familiarity with that path, then you're not dying here either. You mean the, body, the body is flaking out, the mind is vanishing, but you're not. And what persists then is just that smooth, silken, translucent flow of awareness. And that's the one thing that doesn't die, because it doesn't arise independence upon the brain. They keep on looking for the, for the neural correlates of consciousness. They haven't succeeded, and frankly, from a Buddhist perspective, it's very good reason. The the NCC, the Neurochorolas of Consciousness, or the minimal amount of neural neural activity that is needed to generate consciousness. Well, there isn't any. The brain can be completely dead, and there's still a flow of consciousness. And now there's a a mounting body of evidence, just from straight scientists, Sam Parnia, and then uh, Pim Van Lommel, so an American medical doctor and a Dutch one. I've mentioned this before, but they're coming up with some really compelling evidence. And not as Buddhist or Hindu, somebody trying to prove their religion but just you know, by people who are working a lot with dead people. And, and Sam Parnia, the most recent book, by him. You can easily find it on Amazon. He points out, and don't call this a near-death experience. It's not a near-death experience. It's a post-dead experience. They're dead. There's no part of them that's alive. But then with this wonderful technology of medicine, they're able to p- take a person who was, was dead and bring him back again. And quickly enough, so there was no brain damage or other kind of serious damage. So this is a post-dead experience and the post-dead experience entails a continuity of experience without any help from the brain at all, which means it's not coarse mind being uh, activated. So the point is very simple, and this is why we, we keep on getting this point, release grasping, release grasping, so that when you're on your final ride, you're not identifying with anything that will die. That's the simple point. You're not identifying with anything that will die. So outside, they say, oh, he's dying, he's going, he's going, oh, he's gone. Yep. For your perspective, that's right. Get over it. You know, it happens. You fell out of the plane, you're gonna land. If there's birth, it's gonna be death. About the same odds. If you're born, you're gonna die. You fall out of a plane, you hit the ground. Pretty much the same odds, you know. So there should be no surprise. So it's been very practical then. And so Substrate consciousness already, that doesn't die, it just moves on. But if you can break beyond that, if you recognize the ultimate nature of your mind has never been other than Dharmakaya, then you conclude there is nothing in me that can die. The Dharmakaya is unborn and therefore unceasing. That which is unborn can't possibly cease, cannot possibly perish if it wasn't born in the first place. So, as I stated before, now in this, in this classic commentaries, alternate between Ralat and Bodhicitta as you're dying. But he said, but now, if you cannot do that, again, going back to this very early commentary, which I think must have just been a written-down oral transmission, because this was largely an oral transmission for the first some centuries anyway. Then the oral transmission here, like a thousand-year-old oral transmission says, if you cannot do that, identify the ultimate nature of your mind as a dharmakaya, perceive the character of samsara and nirvana as neither to be accepted or rejected, you've heard that many times, and rest in ultimate reality, rest in dharma, Ta." In the state in which the ultimate nature of your mind is not transferred, yeah, that still seems like raising the bar pretty high. Um, but there it is. There's transference of consciousness. This whole thing of poa, poa, you know, sending, imagining sending your consciousness out through your, through your your crown chakra to a pure land like Amitabha's pure land of Sukhavati, which I mentioned yesterday, or to you know, Padmasambhava's pure land, or to Maitreya's pure land, to Shita, and so forth. That whole theme of pure transference of consciousness uh, is within the context of still identifying with a particular current of consciousness, a stream of consciousness, your stream of consciousness, which is some samsara and it's going to go somewhere, so you take the reins of the horse and then poof, with the power of aspiration, prayer, visualization and so forth, then they say like an, like an archer shooting an arrow you, you propel, you direct not just letting karma and klesha override this, you take the reins in your own hand and then you propel it. So this is the transference of consciousness. Okay, now, this is very widely taught in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, where you're learning how to do this yourself, okay, poa. Um, but it can in... It's worth stories we're telling. I didn't see it myself, but I got it from a very reliable witness. Um, it can also be done by a very accomplished Vajrayana master, as was Kamtul Rinpoche, Kamthul Rinpoche. And he lived in a town not very far from Dharamsala, but I never got there. I, uh, that's another side story, why, why I never got there, but I won't go there right now. But he was the... Um, this was it a was little Dashi-jong. Uh, Dashi-jong-re. So right near Dharamsala, there was another village just a few hours away, I think, maybe four or five hours. And this was both a, lay, a little lay hamlet or a, little, a small lay village of Tibetans, but also, it was kind of the headquarters of Kamduramachi, Kandur, who was an accomplished yogi. He was Denzenbamu, uh, uh, her, her guru. So really an accomplished yogi, really accomplished. And around about him were these tokten. And the tokten, these are ones. These are like Samson. They never cut their hair, so they have dreadlocks. These, really, these are like the special, special forces of Tibetan yogis. They're really hardcore, really hardcore. Um, the Kagyupa, happened to be of the Kagyupa lineage, but really intense yogis. In that Dupan Rinpoche, that, that lama that said, I can remember all my past lives, he was of that sort. Right? And so when he cut his hair, I'm going tangent on tangent here, but when Dupan Rinpoche, he was one of these, you know, like an, like an old colonel in the, the red berets of the Tibetan yogis, um, when he cut his hair, because they don't cut their hair, when he cut his hair at the age of something like 80 or so, then that was his signal. I'm ready to check out folks. And then his holiness, Dalai Lama, learned about it. Because he's, he's just ready to practice poa on himself. The body's old. What do you do with it? Get a new one. You know? And then his holiness heard about it. Oh, Duwanamaji has cut his hair. Then his holiness zipped off a letter and said, don't die. I don't allow you to die. I want you to stay around. You should start teaching Dharma. Don't die. I forbid it. <laughs> <laughs> so he hung around for some years after that. I would like to be told by the Dalai Lama, don't I? That would really tell, say a lot about me, but he's not said that to me. <laughs> so, Machi. So here's a story from Dashichong. From so it's a community, it's kind of like, like this mixture of really intense yogis who are spending like 16 hours a day in meditation for decades. You know? and then, But this lay community, which is supporting them, and is is the clan leader. He's the he's kind of like the mayor of this little hamlet, and he's also the head yogi. And so, the story goes: this is back in about 1973 or so, that um, <coughs> there was some dog. Dogs are everywhere in India, and so there was a dog, and so, the dog was injured or was ill. I think it was probably ill, sick, but terminally sick, and really in a lot of pain. Really, and so it was yowling all of the, and yowling through the night. I mean, just this dog and crying pain and the the lay people from this little village came to kumara and said rumachi this dog is suffering so much wouldn't you please practice poa transfer the dog consciousness send it send it some good place you know but the dog's in misery and it's going to die so why not just put it out of its misery and said?" and, Rinpoche, and Rinpoche looked at it and said not yet it has to burn off some more karma it has to burn off some more karma you know. so and it's a classic story they came twice and he said not yet not yet it has to burn off some more karma Third time was a charm. He said, okay, now I can do it. And so what the people witnessing saw, there's the dog yowling, in really a lot of pain. But Rinpoche doesn't touch the dog. He just takes his purbu, ritual dagger, which is it's not a weapon. It would, you couldn't cut butter with it. But it's a, it's a ritual dagger that you roll. And so he took this dagger between his palms. He went into meditation. And I think there was some kind of a diagram, something just some little diagram that he put on the ground representing the dog's consciousness. The dog's over there. And he just goes into meditation. And then he spins the purbu or the kilaya, it's called in Sanskrit. He spins it. Knocks it into the ground. just Boom! Into the ground. And in that moment, the dog died. The dog was gone. But he had to wait until the time was right. So that's poa. So poa is practiced as long as you're still identifying with the continuum of your consciousness. At this point, it's going to be your substrate consciousness, moving through the bardo, right? Whereas if you've broken through that to primordial consciousness, then there's no poa. There's no place to go, right? You're beyond space and time. So that would be the the best way to transform. And so... Atisha commented on this practice we've just summarized, and there's really not much more to be said about it. Atisha said, there is no more wondrous counsel on dying than this. And I believe him. You know, uh, there are, and I've been taught in, in natural liberation, there's a, oh, oh, a number of uh, teachings that Gatronvachi has given me, um, teachings on different types of poa. You know? And I have no doubt. I mean, they're very, very profound. They've been effective for many, many people. But this is the simplest one and he said there's n- nothing more wondrous than this okay so that's it for the five powers to be practiced implemented at the time of dying in order to transmute your final adversity into the greatest boon of your entire practice of your whole life so that's kind of big that's rather important that's why he did it as a separate section okay let's read just a little bit more and then we have a bunch of questions that have stacked up let's just do a bit more though since our time is passing quickly so the next aphorism reads, and this is, this is the criteria for having trained the mind. This is enormously important. It's very simple, but enormously important. And as we've noted, and I've tried to make this as clear as possible, I think it's clear to everybody here, that when you're practicing shamatha, it, this is not a mystical practice. It's nothing, nothing opaque, uh, strange, weird. Uh, it's so prosaic. Your practice is working. If your mind, your body and mind is becoming more relaxed, still, and clear. You've heard that a dozen times, at least by now. Is your practice working or not? I don't, it's, it's not how many nyam are coming up or how not, are not coming up. It's overall, as you're practicing day to week, day, week to week, are you entering into deeper states of relaxation, stillness and clarity? And also, a little word of wisdom from my stepdaughter. She used to be a physical trainer, a very, very fit young lady. Um, and she said when you're going for, you know, for real physical training, pretty intense physical training, if you try to evaluate how you're doing, Day by day, it's an exercise in futility. And what she said, and I suspect this is true for the whole profession, is if you, as you're training out, reg- training regularly, going to the gym and developing the muscles and the stamina and so forth that you want to do, uh, how frequently should you be checking up to see whether your fitness program uh, is working? It's about once a month is a good idea. Once a month, then check up. After a month, you should see some clear something, some dip, something different. After the second month, it should be different than after the first and so forth. So that's actually not a b- bad criterion also for, for the practice of shamatha. To try to evaluate day by day. Oh, Tuesday to Wednesday was good. I think I'm making really good progress. From Tuesday to Wednesday, way too narrow. Because Friday could suck. You know, least, oh, I must be doing something wrong. Okay? Oh, no, I'm doing something right because Saturday turned... Oh, no, Sunday sucked. You know? So be, you'll be gyrating all over the place. This is why Leda Lingba said, do not take a short-term... View. Do not try to make short-term evaluations of how your practice is turning out. Take long-term. right? And so most importantly, as I've said so many times, learn well, think well, understand well, practice well, know you're practicing well, and then just carry on. And after some weeks have gone by, then say, okay, any meaningful change? Because you, you don't even need to say it's up and down. I mean, that's just a given, right? But within the up and downs, are you seeing some movement in the right direction that is meaningful to you? Right, and especially in terms of straight criteria of shamata, those three qualities. Well, now we have a much larger kettle of fish, so to speak, a much larger project, much much larger. Shamata was the after the preliminaries; it was the f- first half of one line, right? That was shamata, and the rest is boom, right into ultimate relative bodhicitta and this whole uh, extreme makeover of your whole way of life and way of viewing reality. So, what 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 are the criteria? that your practice of lojong, specifically this one, seven-point mind training, what are the criteria that you're practicing well that it's bringing about the intended transformation and benefits? What are you looking for? Right? So it's a really practical question. And again, checking up on a monthly basis is not at all, probably it's a good order of magnitude. Not every day, not once a year, every month would be good. So now what's the core of it? What's the crux of your practicing lojong, the two types of bodhicitta, how do you know whether, whether it's working or not? And if it's not working, then you might want to double-check. Am I practicing incorrectly? Am I really practicing or just giving lip service? Uh, but here it is. You probably can guess. So the, the criteria is summarized in this one aphorism. The whole of Dharma is synthesized in one aim. It all comes down to one thing. And that one thing is self-grasping. Self-grasping. And so that's, and I I won't give more explanation. I think you you have a very good idea of that. Self-grasping, and you can just say that goes hand in hand with self-centeredness. If you see self-grasping hyphen self-centeredness, if you see that gradually getting softer, not vanishing, but, you know, not gone, but getting softer, more muted, less frequent, less intense. Just overall, it's losing the battle. You know, one of those incremental battles where, process of attrition. If you see that subsiding, uh, circumstances that would otherwise arouse a lot of self-grasping, there's the mudra again, uh, they still arouse it, but not as intensely. Or maybe the minor ones don't arouse it at all. You just kind of, oh, I used to be have a lot of oh, ego coming up. That's not happening anymore. Okay? That's what it all boils down to. So in the commentary, all hearing, thinking, and meditation, that great triad, All of this is aimed at eliminating grasping onto the self, which upon existence has no existence whatsoever in and of itself. That is, of course, it's not denying that we exist, but it is specifically designed designed at understanding, gaining a realization, that this grasping onto oneself is someone who is really here by our own intrinsic characteristics, just waiting to be labeled, waiting to be identified, passively, but inherently existent existing prior to and independent of conceptual designation. That's it. That's exactly what doesn't exist. And grasping onto that does exist, taking it seriously. And there you have, there's the root of your suffering. And the companion, of course, is manifesting that pragmatically as self-centeredness. So the parallel is very strong, very strong in a non-lucid dream. Because there you are. you know with this very, very short lifespan of utter uncertainty uh, of how long your dream is going to last. It could be a five-minute dream. Some dreams go on for 90 minutes. One continuous story. Really long ones, 90 minutes, mostly at the end of the night. But many dreams much shorter, five minutes, ten minutes. But while we're in it, thinking we're going to be here forever, making big-term plans, you know, going to the insurance insurance agent, say, I want to get some life insurance here and health insurance and, and, and house insurance and automobile insurance and And I got my set of guns. I got to ensure then they're really valuable. Um, So all these long-term plans and locking onto yourself—this is this is who I really am, you know, really who I am. And then, of course, with that, then you're vulnerable for everything, and pretty much everything is just happening to you. So there it is: non-lucid dream, non-lucid waking state. The parallel is very, very deep. And so we're grasping onto something that doesn't exist, as if it does exist, and then we reap the consequences. And so. In terms of taking stock or evaluating how our practice is going, the old commentary says, just examine, do all your physical, verbal, and mental activities enhance or diminish self-grasping? If they reinforce self-grasping, and that can happen, right in the midst of Dharma practice, I guarantee it. I know it from my own experience. I mean, remember me, You know, when I was like, basically in diapers in Dharamsala at the age of 21, feeding when you know, I'd been there for a couple of months, you remember? And feeling when people come to d- with Dharma, practice, dharma questions, and I'd feel, oh, I know more than you do. Uh, so there it was. I'm feeling a bit superior. It's called self-grasping. You know? I'm something special. I'm something special. And so then if you start, and then you start getting a reputation, start people admiring you, whatever, 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 uh, your Dharma practice can just be a sham. It looks really good on the outside. And you might want to get to yourself some really fancy robes. And a crown would be nice. And then make sure you have all the ritual implements. You know, the bell, the vajra, big, uh, really fancy damaru Really fancy one. Get, get all the accoutrements. And make sure everybody can see your mala. and Make sure it's a good one. You know. Then you really call yourself Holy Jotuku, you know, uh, It can all be a big trip. You know. And then if you get admiration and so forth, then it's just mm, all a big sham. So it can happen. I know it can happen. I know from first person experience it can happen. And so even Dharma practice can augment one's self-grasping. Even in shamatha practice. You know, everybody back off. Don't bug me. Don't, don't, you're annoying me. You're, irritating. you're making noise. You're, I'm seeing you. I'm trying, to pra- I'm trying to practice Dharma here. Everybody piss off. Please leave me alone. I'm trying to, pra- I'm trying to practice the sake, sake of all sentient beings, but you get out of my way. <laughs> all other sentient beings, but not you. You're just irritating me. Okay? That can happen. So if your practice reinforces self-grasping, all your spiritual practice is heading for the eight mundane concerns and your self-aggrandizement in this life. In this case, your whole practice is misguided, which is such a shame. This is why I, I know I sound like and probably am ranting and raving on occasion, uh, on multiple occasions, where people are teaching things that are just, you know, they're saying this is Dharma and it's, then you say, where's your basis, you know? So the importance of finding authentic teaching and engaging in authentic practice, because frankly, it's a very important point. Uh, it can take just as much effort to engage in misguided practice as it is to authentic practice. No less, no more. You could even give more effort to misguided practice, where you've just briefly received some really bad advice, you know. And there it is. Your t- your life is going by. You know the the the, the sands of your life in the hourglass. They're just drifting right away. You're striving, striving very diligently, maybe even with a good motivation. But if your practice is inauthentic, <coughs> if it's not striking the target, then there it is. I mean, it's really quite sad. Right? And again, one of, the most common one, one of the most common ones is people thinking they're engaging in some very, very frankly, advanced, very deep pinnacle of practice. So in the whole Theravada tradition, there's nothing higher than Vipassana the people coming in for a one-day workshop and Vipassana thing, I'm a Vipassana practitioner. None of this jhanas and shamatha and the ethics for me. I'm a Vipassana practitioner. And likewise, you've heard it before, Vajrayana practice, you know, my lama is, it's very common, my lama is, and they'll pick out one of the biggest lamas because they've seen him on a video or they attended a lecture with 5,000 people. My lama, my lama is some exalted being. I've been hearing that for the last 42 years of, you know, this kind of, I'm a disciple of ba boom you know, uh, so that happens. I'm a Dzogchen practitioner, a Mahamudra practitioner, a Vajrayana practitioner. I'm a nakba. That's a tantrica. Look, Just look at the bun on top of my head, and this is a real bone right through it. If that doesn't show you I'm a real tantrika, I don't know what does. You know? That happens a lot. So people you know, taking on and doing it very sincerely, really, really believing their story. But then they're not practicing that, and they're not practicing this. They're not practicing what they're saying they practice, because they don't even know what it means. They're not laying the foundation. Because they, they think they're over that, in which case they've missed the whole boat, and yet they're giving a lot of effort. That's, why, that's where the passion comes from, is that uh, it's people giving effort it should bear good fruit. That's all. Very simple. Rather than just building up your eight mundane concerns. So if your practice attenuates your self-grasping, that is the real point of your study and practice. Once we release self-grasping, we have the opportunity to begin to realize our actual nature, pristine awareness. So that's a beautiful point. And I'll remind you, and this is the last point for today. I have some time for question and answer. Um, such a simple but beautiful, deep aphorism from Dzogchen tradition about the second noble truth. You remember it? It's worth memorizing. It's very easy. And that is, the second noble truth. Why are we vulnerable to suffering at all? Why? That's a question that hardly ever comes up in our modern world. We're kind of just taken for granted. Oh, you know, survival, etc. blah, blah, blah. Well, no, okay, Buddhism goes much deeper than that. Uh, especially when we consider continuity of consciousness beyond death. And so why are we suffering at all? And then there's just two answers for it. And that is one, is we're identifying with that which is not I as being I, like m- my body, my mind, me, this conventional person, you know, this sentient being. So we're identifying that which is not I as being I, or I mean I, I mean mind as not. That which is not I mean mind as being I mean mine. That's one half. That'll get us into trouble but the other half is not identifying who we actually are. And that's the Dzogchen response. Who we actually are? Well, Dharmakaya. Dharmakaya. So those two. But in order to realize who you are, in order to realize rikpa, that rikpa is not something you have. It is your core. It is who you are. In order to realize that, you really have to let go of all the delusions of grasping onto things that are not you. Because you can't do both simultaneously. Right? You can't be grasping onto your body or your mind or your conventional sense of identity, let alone reified sense of identity, and simultaneously realize with. That's never going to happen. Right? So, so those are really some wonderful teachings on how to live and to die, how to evaluate your practice. Because this is, of course, not a way of evaluating just your practice of the lojong. Uh, If you're practicing, if you took as your root text for your whole practice, a guide to the Bodhisattva way of life, you'd find the criteria of practicing correctly are exactly the same. And so, very sound, very practical, very grounded. And then you see for yourself the benefits, because the the more the self-grasping diminishes, Uh, there's a sense of well-being that arises from that. And it's not a a sense of well-being from something you've gotten, that you've acquired, but rather from something you've released. You've released delusion, you're seeing reality as it is. So, the symptom of that is a greater sense of well-being. So, we have quite a build-up here. Let's see if I can tackle some of them. now. Yeah, more than 10 minutes. So here's the first one, and I'm going from the bottom to the top so we try to get these in order. Is rikpa an individual mind or is it a part of a larger or universal mind to which we access when we become Buddhas? If it is individual, how could it be rikpa? if it transcends space and time? Could you please explain? So, and why are there four major Oh, that's another one. Okay, we're one at a time. Okay, so there's a question. Is rikpa, uh individual or is it part of a larger universal mind? Any, any answers? You've been hearing teaching now for six weeks and I've, what it, I didn't hear. Collective? Collective? This is rikpa we're skipping the substrate right now. uh, Collective and? I didn't hear the... We we need the microphone. We'll have question and answer. Is the microphone available? And before the microphone gets to you, uh, omit the word collective. Don't (laughs) use the word collective. We want to have you sound good when you're on, you know. When you're broadcast live to millions of listeners. Potentially. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and let you embarrass yourself. No, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, here's the question. Rikpa. everybody, I'm, I might point my finger at you and then be, be prepared. You can start getting nervous right now. Is Rikpa individual or is it collective? Well, what I remember that, yeah, that you said, it was like the... Don't, don't quote me. The, uh, no, I, I won't accept well, that. Because tell, me, tell me, you said, in other words, if what no. you say is wrong, then it makes me wrong. I, I'm not going there. Instead, I'm so sorry. Pause, 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 pause. Full stop. <laughs> what's your view? Own it. No, bec- that, it, it was, I was going to no, ask, no, 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 no. no, okay. You only get to express your view, not mine. I know my view. I can tell you my view, but I'm not going to. Elena, it's It's like, the, the, like the, the, the whole lotion coming to the drop. Okay, that's a very nice metaphor. You just quoted me. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty safe. <laughs> but I've got, you see, in debating, you know, I was trained for years in that. If you give a, a crisp question, then you're asking for a crisp answer. So that's a, this is a crisp question. It's a very good, nice, clean, sharp question. Not asking for a metaphor. Is RIPA individuated or is it collective? Or is it a bad question? What would you say? I don't know. That's I good mean, that's I a don't good know answer. how to, to express it. Okay, that's fine. That's a good answer. I don't know is a perfectly good answer. How about somebody else? You don't need to know. You just have to have a view. Okay, go after Francesca. So, what's it called in, uh, in European soccer, When European football, when there's no score, they call it, don't call it a draw. What do they call it? Draw? Okay, Mexico comes out with a draw. <laughs> Didn't win or lose. So, okay, Italy's up. By elimination, I would say it is individual. It's individual? Yes. Italy just lost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Down Italy. Just out of the trials. Who's up next? Germany is up. <laughs> okay, here comes Germany for the world trials. Germany, Iran. Neither, nor. Neither, nor. Oh, looking good. That's it? Okay, that's enough, that's enough. Yeah, rikpa, is, rikpa transcends all conceptual categories, so it's neither one nor many. It's neither individuated like the substrate consciousness is, nor is it collective, nor is it a part of a universal consciousness. None of the above, okay? So the metaphor, I stand by it. Uh, but in terms of a straight, kind of left brain, okay, which, is it, which category does it fit into? That's it, none of the above. If you try to put it into one of your conceptual boxes, even does Rikpa exist or not, it won't fit. They're really serious when they say this transcends all conceptual elaborations. So we talk about it, of course. There are books written about Rikpa, but they're never, if it's written by a person who's knowledgeable, you're never trying to really describe it. All the words are instrumental, they're pointing to it, to guide you to it. But when you realize it, you will know you've left your conceptual designations and the books behind. But this is for all of Buddhism, not only for Rikpa. Who hasn't heard the wonderful metaphor of, uh, from, the, from the Pali Canon, I think? And that is, you use the raft of the Buddhist teachings to cross the shore of samsara. When you get to the far side, you leave the raft behind. All the teachings, all the practices, the concepts, the categories, the lists, of five skandhas, 18 ayatanas, or eight, twelve ayatanas, and eighteen dhatus, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I leave them all behind. They've served their function. And you've gone beyond concepts, and the culmination of the path, whether it's Shravagayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, whatever, the culmination of the path is always transconceptual. Always transconceptual. So it's diametrically opposed to the Aristotelian notion that the culmination is a celebration of human reason. Yeah, prajna, but prajna in the service of perfection of wisdom and primordial consciousness, jnana. And then a quickie. Uh, why are there four major schools of Tibetan Buddhism and what are the major differences between them? Uh, there are four schools because they stem from four lineages of teachers from the past. And, there's, and obviously this is an enormous question. This would be a one-year course. Uh, but I will say there's a very good book by a, by a scholar by the name of John Powers, and I think it's called Introduction to Tibetan Buddhism. Very good scholarship, and he answers that question very well. And so that's a scholarly question and it deserves a scholarly answer, and we don't have time for that right now. OK, and then, one, that was just a comment. Here's one. Many of the great, uh, many of the great yogis of Buddhism w- were, were married and had families. How were they able to achieve this such high realization while supporting and taking care of their families? How were they able to go to long-term retreats while being married and having children, such as Dinko kenzaremba Well, Dinko kenzaremba is a marvelous example because he was identified as a tuku at a very young age. At the age of uh, now, Matthieu Ricard has translated a beautiful book uh, of his biography with uh, wonderful pictures and so forth. So there it is, excellent translation, a wonderful book of his revered, tremendously revered guru. Um, so you want to get the details? Look to the look to the biography by, that by, that Matthieu Ricard wrote. Um, but and so I've not memorized the book, but I think I'm pretty close here. Dingo uh, Rinpoche, at the age of 13, as I recall, he went into a long-term retreat, lived up in a cave, age of 13. And he stayed there, I believe it was until about the age of 28, 27, something like that. It was something like a 14-year retreat, living as a sort of like Milarepa style, exactly Milarepa style, living in a cave. And all through those years, uh, solo, he, didn't take, he wasn't a monk, but he was a Milarepa. He was just a, a lay, absolute dedicated yogi, hardcore. And then he, at the age of 27 or so, uh, he, start, he began to experience some really severe physical problems, And he was already renowned. He was a great yogi. And so other great yogis of senior generation, or maybe even his peers, they they checked out what's going on here, and they said, Rinpoche, um, for you to overcome these illnesses, this illness is very serious. It's really important for you to marry, to have a consort, to marry. And so please do, because we want you to live a long life, and you won't unless you you marry. And so he did. Uh, He did. He had one daughter. And, but he got in his 14 years or so of retreat before having a wife and a child. Um, and, then, and then from that point, of course, I don't, I don't know the details. How much retreat time did he have after that? But clearly a man of enormous accomplishment and um, just dwelling dwelling in his ocean view. Uh, I think it's a very good reason to believe pretty much at all times. And then just doing so much for Dharma throughout the rest of his life and lived to quite a ripe old age. Now, Dujom Rinpoche... Uh, different case, and that is, I don't know, I don't know his biography, but I haven't heard that he spent years and years and years in solitary retreat as growing up. I haven't heard, so I have to be very careful. What I don't know, I just say I don't know, uh, but I've never heard that. He went into long retreat, like in Kenza At the same time, according to this whole Dzogchen tradition, He is a mind emanation of Dujum Lingba. Dujum Lingba was born having visions of Padmasambhava and other great, great beings. And as you've heard before, this is his mind mind emanation. So, you know, he's born a Vidyadara. So if you're already a Vidyadara, you don't really need to go off and put your body in a solitary place. Because your realization, you're dwelling in your realization, you're always dwelling in Rigpa. So he lived an extremely productive life. He was married twice, had two sons. Djembe Rinpoche and Dungse um, Rinpoche. So it's just different stories for different ones. Um, there are those who, so like, like, uh, like hmm, how do you say, like Jujun Rinpoche, great teacher, lama, scholar, everything, but a lay person, I think, for his whole life, and married fairly early. Uh, so if you're born a Tuku, it's a lot easier. you know. Um, then you just may bring your realization right with you. You're born lucid, like you entered into this dream lucidly, and so you don't need to go off and achieve shamatha, because if you're a vidyadara, you already have it. right? If you're not born a tuku, born lucidly, then really good idea to be able to have some time prior to family. So in my case, not, nothing special of any kind, but I knew when I was 20 that there was only thing I want, one thing I wanted to do, uh, and that Anything else would be a distraction. So that's when I went off to India. I'd had a lovely girlfriend. We remain very dear friends to this day. But that romantic relationship, I very gently released. And she understood and was quite quite nice, actually. very, very sweet party. So I went off to India solo. And that was just the only thing to do. You know, because nothing, I just didn't want anything to be distracting from the one thing that I really valued. And there are many people like that. And then the very gifted ones proceed very quickly. The, the ungifted ones, like me, you continue because there's nothing else to do. That's <laughs> really simple. So if you progress quickly or slowly, there's just nothing else to do anyway. So you just say, well, that's the way it is. You know? So you just kind of meander along. You know? So it's different for different people. Time maybe for one more quick one. When explaining the metaphor for the different stages on the path of shamatha, you have referred to settling the mind in its natural state. Are your explanations of the stages only relevant to that method? If so, how do other methods differ? Very good. That'll be the last one for today. We have only two stacked up. We can attend to those tomorrow. Um, yeah. Among those bullet items, and you're now anybody who's gotten them from the, from the web or from the head office here, uh, you can see what they are. For those bullet items, right? Um, what is achieved and so forth, it's only the final two bullet items. Uh, the quality of experience and then what's the kind of magnitude or flavor of your rumination and so forth and so on. And that's where the metaphor is, the cascading waterfall, the mountain river, the river going through the valley and so forth. Just the final two, just the final two are, are how do you say, relevant specifically to the settling the mind in its natural state. Because it's the only practice that, we, that I've introduced here. And actually it may be the only practice, it is the only practice I know of in shamatha where you're giving no effort whatsoever to getting the mind to calm down. That is, to suppress, to make rumination stop, you know. All the others, you know it well. Mindfulness of breathing, awareness of awareness, although it has two variations. Uh, you really are preferring for the mind to be quiet. And as you well know by now, I think everybody knows it, that in the settling the mind in its natural state, you're really relinquishing all grasping. And so, that therefore, it's going to take longer. But the, the longer process will be very interesting, because then you're watching your mind unravel. You're watching the neuroses and traumas and emotions and so forth dissolve away. You're, you're watching the healing power of your own mind manifest, or the healing power of awareness manifesting in your mind and releasing the mind, healing the mind, right let's say before your very eyes, mentally speaking. So that's why it's, it's, it's slower. If you're, if you're following the trajectory of, let's say, the first four stages, and you're practicing mindfulness of breathing you're going to find the thoughts subside more quickly. Because that practice is specifically designed to get rumination to calm down. The settling the mind is not specifically designed to make rumination calm down as quickly as possible, but let it calm down and unravel of its own accord in its own way. And so that's the most interesting show in terms of what appears to you, is you never know what's coming up. Okay? So is that all clear? I think so. It's 6 o'clock. Enjoy your dinner, and I'll see you tomorrow morning.